बड़े बड़े शहरों में छोटे छोटे घरों में सपने देखे मैं लोग Yo, this is Naman. You're currently listening to Ruckus Avenue Radio. Check out my song on their latest drop, The Rise of South Asian Hip Hop. You're listening to Life Force on Ruckus Avenue Radio, global South Asian radio exclusively in partnership with Dash Radio. Today, as always, we tap into the forces that awaken our lives. I'm your host, Shilpa Agarwal, author of the best-selling novel, Haunting Bombay. Our guest today is Geetika Lizard, writer on the hit Netflix Shondaland show, Bridgerton. Yay! <laughs> Geetika's first feature, a biopic of Jane Austen, was optioned and later adapted for musical theater in the UK. Her first TV spec landed her a staff writing job on the NBC comedy Outsourced. She worked on season one of Disney's Mirror Royal Detective animated series. As the only South Asian member of the team from the start of the production, she had an integral role in shaping the show. Geetika is a two-time winner of the WGA Writers Access Project and developing her own comedy series and drama series, which we'll be talking about more in the show. Welcome, Giti. Thank you, Shilpa. It's wonderful to be with you. It's wonderful. And we are <laughs> recording here in Gitika's back studio, so. Are we gonna talk about our friendship here? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Let's start with that. So I call you Giti instead of Gitika. Yes, please, please, please call me Giti. Because we've known each other since we were kids. We grew up in the same city. Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. And then... Um, our parents were friends. Our parents were friends. We lost touch because this is in the days before social media. Right. And I moved to L.A. And you moved to L.A. In junior high. And then you landed on my street. And, and then I, I landed on your street, across I, the street. And I can say now that the universe had something brewing for us <laughs> when you came and landed on my street. It was one of the best things that ever happened. It, it, it truly was. It truly was. So... I'm going to talk more about that, but I want to back up a little bit because you went to Stanford, then you got your MBA at Michigan, mm -hmm. right? And, um, you know, you've always been very creative, but then you went out to earn your MBA and you worked at Microsoft and then you shifted back to creative work. Yep. So what, tell us about this shift back because it was always something inside you. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I majored in English at Stanford and I always loved literature and I loved writing but the, the idea of being a writer wasn't even in my mind an option it was like a pipe dream that was crazy and never gonna happen so and I think that's because as you know I mean are we we're the generation we're the first generation to grow up here and and all of our parents and uncles and aunts tend to be in the sciences. I mean, your dad's a doctor, my dad's a doctor, you know, most of the people we know are engineers or doctors. So going into the arts just didn't even seem like, you know, anything realistic to me. I, had, I didn't have it modeled. So I did the practical thing and I got a practical degree. I mean, I started in advertising. I thought that would be creative and Microsoft was my client. And it seemed to me that they were having all the fun. So I thought I want to be the client <laughs> instead of the agency. And so that was part of getting the MBA. I wanted to work for Microsoft. And um, it was two 
years of struggle. Like I was really a fish out of water there for an English major who had no exposure to any of anything practical. Suddenly taking accounting and finance and statistics and all of that was just kind of mind boggling. But it was also really good. And I think that that knowledge could come back around to be really useful later in, in my career as it is now. And I want to talk about that later. Yeah. Yeah. But at the time, you know, my goal was to work for Microsoft. I interned there in their entertainment division, and then I went back as a full-time employee. So I, I basically got my dream job, and I was miserable. I was absolutely miserable. And, you know, it was a great job, objectively speaking. I was in charge of sports. You know, I could go to any game, anywhere. I was in charge of baseball, soccer, their basketball game, their golf game, the new football game. But it wasn't my dream job. It was someone else's dream job. Mm -hmm. And for me, I, I needed to do something that was more creative and meaningful to me. Mm -hmm. I felt like I was dying a slow death there. Like my soul was getting squashed. Yeah. And I, I just knew if I stayed, it was only going to get worse. And it was going to get harder and harder to leave because of the golden handcuffs, the stock options that they give you, which make it very lucrative to stay. Mm -hmm. And it's very tempting. Six more months, I'll vest the, these options. Six more months, I'll vest these options. If I'd stayed another like five or six years, I could have pretty much retired. I mean, this was the glory days of Microsoft. Wow. So it was really, really hard to walk away. Um, but I knew I had to do it or I, would have, I wouldn't have myself left. Yeah. And so I left and I started writing, which is what I'd always wanted to do. And I'd actually taken a screenwriting class when I was, um, when I was working at Microsoft. and But I still, I don't know why screenwriting wasn't on my radar. So for a while I was just sort of this, maybe it's because I, I did really bad in that class. <laughs> I mean, everything I wrote was awful, just god awful. Um, and I remember the um, the instructors writing a little note you know, to me on my sort of final thing that I turned in. Um, Next time write the thing that scares you. Like they, they literally said that. And it might have been because of a conversation I had with them that there was a, this book that I'd seen that I really liked, but something about it scared me. So they were going off that conversation. But that comment really stuck with me because I had been writing safe, safe mm -hmm. things, right? Because you are worried or you might be worried about how would people perceive what you're writing. 100%, yeah. absolutely. And that's been one of my biggest struggles in general, in life and in my work, is worrying what people are going to think. Yeah. And I think as Indian women in particular, we are trained to be a certain way and to be very concerned about appearances and what people think and being mm -hmm. polite and kind and respectful and all of that. And honestly, to make it as a creative, all of that has to go out the window. That's right. It's very counterintuitive, as you know. Not counterintuitive, but counter our training, That's I right. should say. And the training of most women, actually. Yes. Yes. I, I do think we have a double whammy, though, <laughs> as Indian women. Don't you think? <laughs> uh, well, especially in this country. Yeah. So I, yeah, so I, for a while, I like, I, I was longing to write, but I didn't know what to write. So I felt like I was this writer in search of a form. And I knew myself well enough to know that like novels were just too many words for me. Yeah. I just couldn't do it. <laughs> I don't know how you do it, but it was too many yeah, words. Well, I wish someone had warned me back then, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I had written poetry as a student as in at Stanford I'd written you know sort of angsty poetry that you do when you're a student you know yeah. for readings and things yeah. like that but I didn't want to be a poet it was there's a part of me that is more practical and yeah um but then I read this article it was Akiva Goldsman um who had written A Beautiful Mind and he was interviewed in this magazine and he likened screenwriting to writing poetry and he talked about how it's um highly structured 
and it's efficient, you know, one word instead of two. Um, it's visual, it's emotionally concentrated. All those things just spoke to me. And so then it really hit me like, okay, this really is the right form for me. Mm -hmm. I need to like give this an honest shot. Mm -hmm. And so I thought I'm just gonna try writing a screenplay, you know, see if I like it, see, write for real. Um, and so I wrote a biopic of Jane Austen. And the reason I did that, well, for one, I thought I'd start with a true story, so there was less to figure out. Mm -hmm. But two, when I, I had always loved Jane Austen. She was my favorite author, um, one of my favorite authors in, in, at Stanford. I took a whole seminar on Jane Austen, and I always felt like I could relate to her heroines because it was all about marriageability for them. Their worth was in their marriageability. And I felt a little bit like that was the message that we were given growing up, mm -hmm. that it was, you know, everything was weighed against, is this going to make you more appealing you know, as a, as a wife or less appealing. Um, so there was something in that story that resonated with me. Mm -hmm. And then when I researched Jane Austen's actual story, I was really surprised to find that um, she should have been married, could have been married. She and her mom and her sister were pretty destitute. And she got an offer from a very wealthy friend of hers. She initially said yes, slept on it, got up the next morning and said no. Wow. Which was, you know, a very serious decision knowing that her family would be, you know, she and her sister and mom would be impoverished. But what she did after that was what was fascinating. She had already written her first three novels. She poured herself into revising them. Um, and so to me, I, I made the link, maybe it wasn't a real link, but in my mind, she was choosing her art over this loveless marriage. Yeah. She was choosing her art over financial security. That's what I saw anyway. And so and that was the story that I wanted to tell over even like the, the the responsibilities that she had to her family right like right really that's saying, true that's a really good point this yeah this is everything yeah yeah she was it wasn't just a sacrifice on her part she was also making a decision that would affect her mom and her sister yeah and luckily you know it paid off she did get to see the fruits of her labor during her lifetime she did get to make some money not obviously you know didn't make her rich in her lifetime but she had enough success to know that she made the right decision and she knew from watching you know all, all her family members that once you got married you wouldn't have time you wouldn't have energy to be writing and things like that so so maybe because i had walked away from this financial security in the form of microsoft and i was choosing this art form you know an art over that i think maybe that's why that story particularly like jumped out at me and and that was the story that i wanted to tell maybe because it's what i was feeling at the mm -hmm. time so and you had great success with it. Um, yeah. It was a nice surprise. I mean, I I didn't know anyone in the industry, so I just started entering competitions and won a couple of them um, and then just sort of used any person who knew somebody who knew somebody to get it out there. And um, I think my cousin's husband's golf buddy's dad, like literally that, was Jonathan Lynn, who made my cousin Vinny. And um, Jonathan read it. He grew up, he'd grown up in Bath, which is one of the settings, and he loved it and said he wanted to direct and produce it, That's which amazing. was amazing. See, this is where, you know, you just don't know what's going to come to your aid when you are putting exactly. yourself out there. Yeah. But having that early success, I think, was really important because I think from there to Bridgerton, there have also been a lot of no's and a lot of... Oh, yeah. I mean... And a lot of rejections, a lot of yep. shut doors. So how... It, how did you make sense of that? Because, I mean, we've had conversations about this. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah, I mean, what was funny was that at the time, I thought, oh, now I've made it. <laughs> you 
if anyone says that in this industry, I've now I've made it. <laughs> you know that they are new to the industry because there's for almost no one that you know is that true, right? Yeah. I mean, especially in like film and television, it's like expect a hustle the rest of your life. That's that's the business, but so you have to love it. You have to love it so much that you can't picture yourself literally doing anything else. And I think that's that drive is partly what's gotten me through is that I just love what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even though like that project didn't work out at the time because Sony at the same time announced becoming Jane with Anne Hathaway. Mm-hmm. So I knew that project wasn't going to happen. Um, but you just never know. Like life takes really interesting twists and turns because of that, because it, what it didn't get made, I ended up turning it into a musical, which I wrote and directed when I was living in the UK. That musical was so much fun. I mean, I just had the time of my life doing that. Um, that script got me into a screenwriting training program, which then taught me like hardcore sort of nine month training, like how to write screenplays. But then when I came back to the US a few years later, um, and I was still on this sort of film track, I happened to meet a TV writer. He was um, somebody who was very generous, Rob Fresco, who said, oh, you're writing films, like have you thought about television? No, I haven't thought about television. Oh, you know, if you can write a feature, you can write a one-hour episode. And so Rob sat me down and explained the structure of a, of a one-hour episode and said, you know, see what's, what's playing right now that you like and spec it. Well, because I'd written this musical, Glee had just come, in, come out, and I thought, oh, it's a musical. Like, I can do that. And so I wrote a spec of Glee. And that got me an agent, and that got me staffed. So there's a direct line between all those things. The failure of the thing to get made ended up leading to me doing this musical, which got me to write a spec, which got me into TV. And I will tell you, as much as I love film, the first time I walked into a writer's room, I knew I was at home. Like, it was such a joy. Like, film is wonderful, but it's very isolated. And you sit in your room, and you write, and you write, and you write, and you think, and you write. TV is collaborative and sitting in, you know, in a room with a bunch of incredibly smart, funny, um, just inspiring people, it, there's, there's just nothing like it. I mean, it's a, it's a really amazing experience and, and so much fun. And so I have to ask my first Bridgerton question now, which is, uh, what's it like being in the room? Oh my gosh. We all want to know. Oh, Bridgerton room. It's... It's awful. I mean, just <laughs> assholes. No, <laughs> sorry. Can I say that? <laughs> I am absolutely joking. Like, they are the most wonderful, wonderful people. Like, I cannot speak highly enough of this room. Like, every single person in there is someone I would want to be friends with outside of the room. Um, really kind, really generous, funny, smart, articulate, witty. I mean, I could yeah. go on and on. But even, and including the assistants. Um, and our showrunner Jess is really good about like including the assistants in you know pitching and writing scenes now and then and stuff like that. So um, just a really really fun, diverse, um, supportive room. Yeah, that's amazing. Amazing. Yeah, there's no there are no egos. The best idea wins. We build on each other's ideas. It's very affirming. Um, it's a safe place, which writers' rooms have to be because. Sometimes the best stories come out of our own stories. Yes. And so you want the writer's room to be a place where people can actually be vulnerable and, and share, you know, things that have happened to them um, and, and, and pull from the sort of raw emotions of our own lives. So, yeah, I mean, writing, as you know, is 
intensely personal. Yes. I think that's why I was so scared of it for so long. I yeah. didn't take any creative writing classes as an undergrad. I was scared. I was yeah. scared of it. Yeah. It's very revealing in a way that even like nonfiction and like bio- autobiography or, you know, memoir, those are vulnerable too in a different way, but there's something about fiction. I'm, I'm not sure that I know what it is, but you're making so many choices. And as somebody who's worried about what people think, it's like, oh, if I name her that, people are going to think, you know, mm-hmm. this. Well, if I make world. this choice, they're going to think that. Right. You're you're playing God in such a big yeah. way. Yeah. yeah. And every choice that you make is revealing in some way and can lead people to think X about you or Y about you. And unless you can let that go, you're never going to, like, fully embrace the work and you're never going to actually be good at it, yeah. you know? Yeah. That's beautiful. So... Well, I want to stop right there, take a little station break, and I want to come back and ask you some specific questions about writing, and then a few more questions about Bridgerton. We'll be right back after this break to Life Force. Can I begin? Uh-huh. Make room for the queen of Hindustan! Hey, it's Raja Kumari. I did it, I did it, I did, I did it all by myself. And you're checking out Life Force on Ruckus Avenue Radio. Welcome back to Life Force. I'm your host, and I'm here today with Bridgerton writer Geetika Lizardi. So, Geeti, you know, we, we touched a little bit upon the nose, and I want to push you a little bit more on that because sometimes, and I know you've experienced this because we've talked about this, the nose are just nose. They are yeah. doors, they are applications or opportunities or whatever that you spend a lot of time applying for, and then and nothing no. nothing comes of it yeah that's absolutely true and especially in this industry you hear so many no's and very few yeses and that it's the, that's the nature of the beast um, but I think and I mean everyone approaches you know sort of their life philosophy differently but I do have faith that gets me through some of those times yeah. that there's you know something bigger that's you know out there that's guiding me helping me making sense of it all mm-hmm. um and that i may not understand why this no came now but there's probably a reason for it um and, and i just need to sort of let go and submit sometimes which is really hard for me to do mm-hmm. but to trust right you, you just have to trust that you're on this path for a reason and that you need to persevere um but i'm not going to say that i haven't wanted to give up because i have and you know there were years and years of struggle where nothing was happening in my career and I just was really really stuck and there were things going on in my personal life that were making it hard also but um, I remember wanting to give up and being ready to give up and can you go to that moment can you tell us what that was like and what you were feeling and how you got out of it yeah and I think again this was I don't think I had really gotten fully over my my fear of sort of putting myself out there and and writing things that scared me. So this is sort of pre that that choice. But in in that moment of wanting to give up where I felt like I couldn't write anything that I really liked, anything that was going to get attention, get me a job. Um, and this is after I've been staffed. This is after I've been in a writer's room. I remember um, my friend Vera, Vera Santa Maria, who was on Outsource with me, who has gone on to do amazing and wonderful things like running the Pen15 season two room. Vera's one of my inspirations um, and a mentor. And, and Vera told me in that moment, she said, you know, the difference between the people who make it and the ones who don't, they just don't give up. 
It's not that they're necessarily more talented or gifted or know more people. It's that they don't give up. And that was that was her encouragement to me. Just don't give up. Yeah. And it was what I needed to hear in that moment because I was ready to give up. Yeah. And to have someone I respected who was incredibly is incredibly talented say that um, it was perfect timing. It's like either it's you get a lucky break or it's perseverance, right? And for I think the vast majority nine times out of ten, yeah, it's perseverance. It's perseverance. Yeah. Yeah. Perseverance and also being committed to your craft, right? Like being excellent is the baseline for entry. Like it's such a such it's such a competitive business. So I took classes, you know, I took um, classes to 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 get better, mm-hmm. to to fill in the gaps um, in my knowledge, and and I started taking more risks. I started writing the things that scared me, mm-hmm. um, and. That honestly was the breakthrough. So that that shift yeah. happened a couple years ago, maybe around 2018. That was or, a few years ago, yeah, yes. when I really felt like I... I remember that because yeah. I remember that moment. C- can you... This is something you've struggled with. I want yeah. to say that, like, yeah. how am I perceived? How do yeah. I put something out there? It's a very vulnerable thing. What happened where you were just like, I'm going to write what scares me? Because that was a seed that was planted from long ago. And you were finally able to make that seed, boom, blossom. Finally, let's activate the seed. I'm going to write what scares me. You know, it's it's hard to separate in some ways when you're a writer. It's hard to separate your life from your work because so much of your work is drawn from your life. So I think it was probably related to personal things going on in my life where... Um, I just had some real challenges in mm-hmm. some friendships and I think I grew to be a different person out of that mm-hmm. um, because I think some consequences came from me speaking truth in relationships and and I lost some friendships yeah. and I think I realized that I was still okay Yes. at the end of that I came out of that and it's like you know what it's okay like I have my integrity yes um, I said what I needed to say it wasn't popular um, maybe I need to do that in my work as well yeah and so I started writing from that place and what was that like what was that like internally To I mean I know what you were writing at that time and what was that like it was something challenging for sure very challenging it was like it was like finding my voice Mm -hmm. really again like I learned how to be a good you know good Indian girl and not make waves and make make peace make Mm -hmm. everyone feel good Mm -hmm. and so to to say things that people didn't like or found difficult was really hard Um, but it was empowering also even though there are consequences to speaking out it's empowering Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I learned. And then I decided to put that on the page. And then once I got going, <laughs> I was like, watch yeah. out. <laughs> watch out. Well, like, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to say what I need to say and what I what I see is true. And I think that's the job of a writer, right, yeah. is to speak truth. Absolutely. So, so a couple writing questions for you. One is um, you describe writing as a Rubik's Cube. And uh, <laughs> can you tell us a little, little bit more about that? Yeah, and, and I'm when I said that, it was specific to um to screenwriting and particularly tv writing where you have 
at least in the old days, you had a certain number of minutes that you had to write to. It's different on streaming where you can sort of, there's flexibility. But still, you know, a one hour show has to be around an hour. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it can't be like an hour and a half, you know, or 20 minutes. So you have this framework that you have to fit and you have a certain number of acts. And it's just the sort of like, I think, structure that we're used to beginning, middle, end. Um, and in drama in particular, you have multiple storylines going. In Bridgerton, I think we've had up to like 10 stories going at a time. You in know? what episode you mean? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, wow. every character, you know, we, we love all of our characters. We do <laughs> and too. We, we want them all <laughs> to have stories. And, you know, I think sometimes we've been criticized for that. Like we were trying to cram too much in. But at the same time, it's like, but these are important characters. Yes. And we have a number of seasons, you know, with them. So we're going to spread out their stories. We're going to start a story now, which we might continue in the next season and the next season, mm -hmm. right? And so it's a way of sort of valuing your characters. Um, but so we have all these different storylines going on and a limited number of time and space and a structure that you have to fit in. And, and it, you piece it together. And so early in the season when you're starting out and you're, you don't know what the storylines are for any of your characters necessarily, I mean, we, obviously we have the novels to draw from, but some of these characters don't exist in the novels. Mm -hmm. And so there's really nothing, there's no source material. Um, so we're all pitching ideas, you know, of like, what's gonna happen with, you know, I'm not gonna say. <laughs> I was about to tell you something and I hate myself back. <laughs> so we can't, you know, um, and so it's just this giant puzzle, right? And you could have a storyline that you love, um, but it doesn't mesh with the other storylines mm -hmm. like it feels like it's siloed off and then that's so that's not good because it's not gonna it's not gonna work for the whole and so you have to find storylines that intersect and weave where people can cross and so you get the general arcs but then even then within the episode you have to weave all of those stories together and they have to fit and you only have a certain number of scenes so every scene has to do multiple things you can't and i think as a new writer that's what i would do it's like oh i need this to happen i'll write a scene for this and then I need that to happen, so I'll write a scene for that. Mm -hmm. Completely inefficient, right? A scene has to do multiple things. It can be, you know, you and I are having a conversation about something, but someone else is listening, and something we say lands on them, mm -hmm. and that affects their storyline, right? So there's an intersection that has to happen. Um, and so you can solve one problem that you've been, like a really thorny problem in the script, and then it throws all the others, That's right? True. It's like you solve, you know, you, you're almost you've almost solved the Rubik's cube, but you, you need to shift one thing, and then everything's thrown off. Mm -hmm. So, so it's tricky, and that's where having so many incredible minds working together really comes in handy. You know, to be yeah. able to solve all those problems together. Beautiful. And writing this is something you and I have talked about. It's yeah. like we say we're writers when like eighty percent of what we do is thinking. No, <laughs> right? And people don't understand that. They think, oh, you just sit in your room and write. No, actually, I think. I yeah. think, I come up with ideas, I solve problems, I go for walks, I drive, I go swimming. <laughs> and it, does, it may not seem like work. I mean, I could be, I could lie down for 20 minutes and it's like, oh, aren't you working? Actually, <laughs> I am working. I know it doesn't look like it, but I'm lying here playing out the scene in my brain to see like, can I see the scene unfold? Can I hear what the characters are saying? And it's a real luxury writing on a season two, season three show because you, you know the actors. Mm -hmm. And I had the privilege of being on set um, for the last four episodes of Bridgerton season two. And so I, I really have those actors' voices in my head. And so it's a wonderful thing to be able to just sort of sit back and dream and go, okay, how would Penelope and Eloise have this conversation? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. or whoever the pairing is or the, 
yeah, whoever's in that scene. It's it's a really fun thing to dream, and you have to have to have to have time as a writer to to let these ideas and scenes and the dialogue in your head breathe. Absolutely, there's a spaciousness that's necessary yes. to the craft. Yes, and it's not often recognized. It's lost sometimes to this idea of productivity, but it's so necessary. Right, and it can you can go through a whole week of feeling like there's nothing really on the page when actually you cracked a lot of really hard problems Mm -hmm. and so now you know what you need to do Mm -hmm. so to me and and everyone has their own process for me i need to know exactly what the whole structure of the whole thing is so i'm writing a feature right now right i had to beat out the whole the whole film and then every act and then every scene within every act and it wasn't until i knew the beats of every scene that i started writing wow um, and to me, that's like the icing on the cake. When I actually get to write, mm-hmm. you know, it's like you've already done 75, 80% of the work. And yeah. now the fun is, okay, how am I going to say this in the most interesting way? Yeah. Where can I place this scene that'll be unexpected, right? Yeah. Usually your first, second, third thoughts are not the best ideas. You have to keep generating that's ideas, right. right? That's right. Keep pushing it, keep pushing it, and yeah. then it comes. Until, yeah. it, until it feels like it the scene sort of sings, you know? And until you feel the emotions of the scene. So for me, it's like, if I'm trying to write something witty and funny, if I'm not like making myself laugh, it's probably not that good. Yeah. Or if I'm writing something that's really sad, I need to feel like I'm gonna cry. Like, at least that's for me. Like I need to feel the emotions of the scene. And then I know that I've kind of dug deep enough. So my next question is, so we talk right now about spaciousness and the need for spaciousness. Yes. But then if you're writing for a show, you have to be creative on demand. So how do you yes. balance those two kind of needs? Um, that's a great question. And I think much like an athlete trains their body to perform you know, under stressful conditions, as a writer, you train your muscles, you know, and, and it's like body memory, like you know what you need to do because you've done it so many times and you just do it, you do the thing, right? I think when you're new at writing or other arts and you think I need to wait for inspiration, right? I think at you some know, point like, you yeah, realize, no, yeah, exactly, have my tea, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> But like that's, that's not the way this industry operates. Maybe if you want to take your time and, you know, write a novel or something. But Does it even work like that? <laughs> okay, forget <laughs> I take that back. I'm sorry. It's okay. <laughs> but like, you know, there is a pressure, like I'll get assigned scenes and I'll have like a couple of days to write them. Or, you know, in some cases, the same day you have to turn a scene in. So you really do have to be creative on demand and you have to find it in you to, you know, be creative and, and do what you need to do to, to write the best scene that you can. And mm-hmm. I think it's muscle memory. I think it's doing it again and again and again and again. Um, and just kind of enter into that space. Yeah, and knowing your process. Again, it's it's knowing yourself and how you work because everyone works differently. So for me, I just know what I need to do, like my process for for generating ideas. You know, sort of I generate broad ideas first and I write little snippets of things. And, you know, idea generating is one of my, like, superpowers. And as a writer, you need to know what your superpowers are, mm-hmm. right? Everyone has different superpowers. So generating ideas is something that I that comes more easily to me. Mm-hmm. So I will generate a lot of lot of ideas for a scene, little snippets of dialogue. It, this could happen, that could happen, right? And then for me, I need to just let it sit for a while. Mm-hmm. So I'll go for a walk. I like swimming laps. I get some of my best ideas and connecting dots. 
um, the best when I'm swimming. Um, so I'll do something that sort of, you know, takes you away from the computer. Exactly. Yeah. Right. It kind of it occupies your left brain so that it's not like busy criticizing you, mm-hmm. <laughs> and lets your right brain sort of freely associate things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I do that, and then I come back and I look at my ideas again, and usually things will pop out at me, mm-hmm. and it'll start to like, you know, come together and make sense. So I love that process because you're you're putting the work in ahead of time to get something. You're not just having a blank page. You're like, okay, let's put some things down on this blank page, and then you're stepping away to allow the kind of subconscious and the exactly. like imaginative mind to kind of do its thing, and then you're coming back. Right. Yeah, I love exactly. that. So um, you mentioned being on set for four episodes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. You went for, what, was it a couple months? It was almost four months, yeah. Last fall? I mean, it was magical. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, for one, like, even if I weren't on the show, I would be a huge fan of the show, period. Like, you know, I've been... I I told you the first thing I ever wrote was a biopic of Jane Austen. So I've been obsessed with Regency for a long time. Yeah. But I've never seen myself in that world. Mm -hmm. And so to be on season two, which was centered on this South Asian family, was so meaningful to me and so beautiful. Um, I mean, there are a couple times when I just outright cried (laughs) watching it filmed. So the holy scene, for one, was magical. I never thought I would see that ceremony, which I've been to so many of those, you know, as part of weddings, Indian Mm -hmm. weddings, Mm -hmm. um, to see on this show that I love. Um, and then the other time that I really lost it was um, Kate's last dance with Anthony. Oh, yeah. With Wrecking Ball playing. And it was so it was so powerful when they filmed it. And I'm watching on a monitor right there in, in the other room, in the, having the, the dance in the ballroom, and I'm watching on a monitor. And even on the monitor, you can see Simone's face and how moved she is and, and Johnny's face. And they're the best of friends and wonderful, wonderful people. And they were so present in that moment. It was so beautiful. And to see someone who looks like me adored in that way, mm-hmm. in that beautiful gown, in that beautiful dance with that beautiful music, I had never seen that before. And I just completely lost it. I was like sobbing, <laughs> sitting in my chair. Okay. Oh my God, it was, a, it was kind of embarrassing. We <laughs> have a little Hi, this is Taryn David, and you're listening to Life Force on Ruckus Avenue Radio. Welcome back to Life Force. I'm here with Geetika Lazardi, writer on Bridgerton. Hello, Shilpa. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, sometimes our lives are like puzzles, and the pieces don't make sense, and then they come together, and... I'm wondering what are some of the puzzle pieces that got you from the, writing that biopic of Jane Austen all those years ago to where you are now? Hmm, what are the puzzle pieces? That's a good question. Because it's not been, it's been a winding road, you know, and there have been tangential paths and, and yeah. yet somehow these yeah, pieces I mean, all came together. Yeah, I suppose if someone looked at my resume, it wouldn't make a lot of logical sense because I wrote on a comedy and then I wrote on a couple of animated shows. Um, It it sort of looks like it might be a little bit all over the map, 
But actually, I think for me, there there are these sort of guiding principles of what I write and what I choose not to write. And I think that helps, right? So for me, I love so many different genres, but everything that I've written has heart. Mm -hmm. It has some kind of humor, even if it's drama. Mm -hmm. And it has some kind of substance, so something to say. Mm -hmm. So those are like my guiding principles. Um, and, and I make choices um, for projects based on those three things. Um, Can I ask you to just clarify a little yeah. bit something to say, what does that mean to you? The thing about television that I really love is it's such an incredible platform um, for influencing culture. Yes. I think even more so than film because in TV, we're coming into your living room night after night, you know, our characters become like family members. And I think they impact us in a way, they're, they're empathy machines for one. They impact us in a way that we might not even be aware of. Mm-hmm. So like I think Modern Family did a lot for helping people understand what a gay marriage could look like. Mm-hmm. And I, I do think that that made a difference in terms of actually changing the law. You know, the way Maud, you know, or other like Norman Lear shows impacted culture. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to be overt about it, right? Like, it's just showing something in a way that's human and relatable that's right. sometimes. That's right. So like in Bridgerton, for example, to see this beautiful South Asian woman be the, the one that the, the Viscount chooses says something. And I've heard from so many South Asian women, like this was the first time I felt seen. Wow. This is the first time I felt attractive, right? We didn't have to say it. <laughs> we just we just show it mm-hmm. and it, it's meaningful. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I love about, about TV is like you have a chance to say something, right? If we had made the characters all white as they are in the novels, mm-hmm. which we could have done, um, we wouldn't have said that thing. That's right? right. The message. So how did Bridgerton come about? I mean, huge opportunity. How yeah. did it happen? So it's actually kind of funny. Um, I had this unfulfilled wish from all those years ago, from that script that I first wrote, the Jane Austen script. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, you know, 15 years ago or something. And then... I got um, new agents a few years ago, and I had my sort of launch meeting with them. This was, I think, December of 2019. Mm -hmm. Um, Or no, actually, January of 2020. That's probably when it was. And, you know, they wanted to know, what do you want to work on? You know, what are you working on? Tell us about your projects, all that sort of stuff. And um, the very end of the meeting, we were about to hang up, and and I sort of said, oh, wait, there's one more thing. Um, My dream project would be to go to London and shoot a period piece because I never got to make my Jane Austen biopic. <laughs> it was just a sort of like throwaway comment, mm-hmm. right? And they're like, okay, great, you know, <laughs> hung up. And then I think in February, Bridgerton came across one of my agent's um, desks and she saw that and she thought of me. And so she submitted me for it. And I'm sure she mentioned that I knew the Regency era, um, but I think that got me read, so. You know, knowing what you want and putting it out there, it's never a bad so, thing, right? So powerful that you know what you want, you know yeah. what your dream is, and to be able to articulate it where, you know, wherever there might be an opportunity. Yeah. And I think I've realized, um, you know, being on set, that I really do love all aspects of television, you know, not just the writing, but, but there's something about being on set with so many insanely talented people 
Um, another thing I really love about this industry is there are so many different kinds of artists that it takes to come together and, and make what we make, right? You've got mm -hmm. musicians, you've got actors, you've got people who design these incredible sets and props and costumes and and camera, you know, the camera department and lighting. All of those are arts in ways that um, I don't think I fully appreciated until I saw them in action. Mm -hmm. Like I had the privilege of sitting with um, Jeff Jura, our DOP, and he showed me the presentation that he made um, of this, his sort of vision of the visual, you know, look and feel of Bridgerton that, that got him the job. And it was amazing, you know, wow. it was beautiful. Um, he, he knows exactly what he's doing and it's all very, very intentional, the, the way that the show looks and feels and um, it really um, elevates everything. So you're working with people at the top of their game in every field. And to me, it's just such a privilege to be in their company. So. That's amazing. So and oh wait, I'm yeah, going to go full yeah, circle back yeah, yeah, yeah. because you know I'm working on my own projects as well. So I have you know a drama series and a fantasy project, um, among other things I'm working on. And you know to run my own shows would be such a dream. Um, and and so then I think back like okay, running a show is like being the CEO of a little company, right? Mm -hmm. You're the one who you have to understand how the budget works. You have to hire. The directors and the you know heads of departments and you have to manage the schedule and all of that and that's those are all things that I did study and that I was trained in with my MBA and so it's like okay maybe the universe knew that I would end up needing those skills in the end anyway even though at the time it felt like I was walking away from that kind of career I've ended up back in a position where those are exactly the kinds of skills that I will need if I you know rise high enough that's right. So that's a puzzle piece where it just kind of sat, right. sat alone for a little bit. You walked away and then click, it, it comes right back into play at the right time. Exactly. Yeah. So it's very humbling. I love that. So I want to ask you what kind of shift you've seen in the media from, let's say, outsourced to Bridgerton. Yeah. I mean, this has been, you know, you talked about our parents coming as immigrants. We were the first generation here. We really didn't see ourselves in media when we were growing up, and for a large part of our, you know, youth. Um, now things have shifted, and, and you've been part of that shift. I don't know about that. Yeah, <laughs> I think. Um, yeah, I do think we've come a long way. I mean, I think people are are now looking not just at the stories that we're telling, but but who's telling them. Mm -hmm. I think there's more awareness of. You know who's writing the stories who's directing the stories um, are they equipped you know to, to know how to do that in an authentic way mm -hmm. that's a conversation we're having that we didn't have before I think um, studios and executives are more aware of that and they are more actively seeking diverse talent you know in in all the different areas I know Shondaland has you know different kind of internship programs bringing up you know people of color and, and women um, into fields, you know, behind the scenes, um, on the production side as well as you know in the writers' room. Um, so that's that's happening, I think, on a more conscious level. Um, and I think people are realizing that there's an audience. I think that's another shift. Is that in the past, a show that centered on you know a underrepresented community might f be seen as a niche. I mean, there, there are those who could have said, oh, you know, cast an Indian family and, and you're, 
you're putting yourself in a corner like who's going to be interested in mm-hmm. that well guess what everyone is interested yeah, in that right if it's a story that's well told and authentic um it's universal that's right and so you know Bridgerton season two like broke all the records it broke season one records which were incredible to begin with mm-hmm. so obviously it's not a niche everyone's watching and mm-hmm. I think there's a hunger for more you know authentic and diverse content there's a hunger for for hearing these stories I mean look at um Dairy Girls I didn't even know I, I don't know anything about that culture you know dairy it's very very specific so it is a niche, but it's not because it's so specific that it's universal. Mm-hmm. It's that universal human experience. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, as TV becomes more global, you know, people are watching things in Spanish or in Korean, right? And so I think um, there's just more of a hunger for stories that we haven't heard before and perspectives that we haven't heard before. Mm-hmm. I think that's very powerful. So what would your advice be to someone who is aspiring to break into... TV and or film and um, where wh- like where do you begin oh goodness that's a big question <laughs> <laughs> um, you begin by writing I mean first and foremost you're a writer so you need to write and you have to enjoy that process mm-hmm. there are a lot of people who say oh I like you know I, I don't like writing but I like having written well that'll get you only so far <laughs> because guess what you have to write you have to keep writing I mean it is that is the work so um, I do think you have to learn to love the process even if you don't love it right away you have to learn to love it because you're going to be doing a lot of it and you're going to do it again and again you're going to hone your craft and you're going to send it out to people that you respect and get feedback lots of feedback you're going to be open to notes if, if you are someone who's precious about your ideas <laughs> forget it you yeah. will not make it in film or television yeah. because it is they are team sports and you have to expect notes you know, from fellow writers, from executives, um, even from actors, you know, we, if it doesn't make sense to them, they, they can't act it, right? right? So you have to be humble, you have to leave your ego at the door, you have to be willing to, you know, trust that people have thoughts that can make your script better. Um, and then I think once you get to the place where you're consistently hearing from people in the industry, this is really good, right? When people are saying, "Oh, can I send this to my agent?" That's when you're in a, you're you're in a good spot, right? In a sense, like you know that you've made it to a certain level, mm-hmm. right? If they're saying, "This is worthy of me showing to someone else who can possibly help you," mm-hmm. um, so you want to wait until you're getting that sort of consistently good feedback, because really you only get one shot, mm-hmm. you know, with with execs in particular, with agents and managers. So you want to make sure that you have, one, a portfolio, not just one piece, because they're going to read one thing and they're going to say, what else have you got? What else have you got? Right? And if you don't have something else, you've just blown that. Right? Can you just say, like, when you got your manager, how many pieces did you have in your portfolio? And they were diverse pieces, right? All yeah, I had, I think I had three features and, um, I don't even remember, I can't, and a couple of original pilots. Mm-hmm. Um, and a bunch of specs like specs by spec I mean uh, you know a sort of sample episode of something that's already existing so I think like I I mentioned I wrote a Glee spec then Mm -hmm. I wrote a Modern Family spec I've specced Stranger Things I specced The Good Wife right and it's their training wheels they're a way of of getting better at at doing this sort of thing 
by being given, you're handed kind of on a silver platter, this world, these characters, this tone, you know, and you have to show that you can write to, to that. And, that, and showrunners want to see that. They want to see that you can write to someone else's voice. Because if you get hired, especially on a TV show, your job is not to write the best scene as you see it. It's to write the scene that the showrunner wants you to write. Mm-hmm. It's to write the show that the showrunner wants you to write. That's your job. So you have to have that skill set of being able to mimic and mimic well and add yourself and your flavor to it, but within certain you know guidelines, mm-hmm. within certain bounds. Um, so yes, you need to have both original work that is completely your own to show your voice and some specs. So I would say a good sort of baseline would be to have one original um, and a, a couple of specs. Like that's the bare minimum, mm-hmm. preferably more, but mm-hmm. that's the bare minimum. And I will say just for people who are starting out, writing a TV, an original TV pilot is the brain surgery of screenwriting. So writing a spec of something existing, that is sort of the easiest thing to do, Mm -hmm. I will say, because Mm -hmm. so much is handed to you already. Mm -hmm. Writing a film is difficult, but a film is a closed loop. Mm -hmm. You you have an ending that you are writing to. Mm -hmm. That makes it a whole lot easier. Mm -hmm. Writing a TV pilot, it's a tricky thing because it's not a closed loop, right? It's the first episode of something. It's the first chapter of a novel in a sense, Mm -hmm. right? But it also has to be satisfying in and of itself. Mm-hmm. So it has to be satisfying, so there's some sort of sense of closure, but it's it's opening a world that, that people want to like live in, mm-hmm. right? It's opening a door. And you and creating like the hitting the right tone is something that's really, really hard to do, I think, for new writers. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be, you know, overly dramatic, which which can can get campy, or it can be um, you know, it can just air in too many different ways, but finding a tone that is unique and grounded and interesting, I think, is a, is a real challenge mm-hmm. um, and something that, yeah, just it takes a long time to get right. So, yeah. So I have a two-part question. The first question is, let's say I have this great idea. How do I know if TV or a feature is the best way to go with that story? Mm-hmm. And the second is, you're writing both. You're mm-hmm. writing a film and you're writing t- for TV. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your projects? But first, tell us about moving from the story idea to the form. Yeah, so you have an idea. Do you know the ending? <laughs> I mean, it's really, sometimes it's that simple. It's like, if you know the ending of the story, it's a film. Okay, wow. Or, you know, in this new world of streaming, it could be um, a limited series. A limited series. Right, so right. if it's... You know the ending, and it's going to take longer than an hour and a half to get there. You know, you know the ending, and it might take four or five hours, okay. six or seven hours, whatever. It could be a limited series, Got right? It. But that's yeah. a closed loop. You you are building to an ending. Okay. If you don't know the ending, and it's more of a, I want to live in this world, mm. you know? It's like, what if, you know, um, a mobster went to therapy, right? You have a premise mm-hmm. that's an interesting premise that has some sort of a twist or some sort of irony in it. That's a show. Beautiful. Yeah. I love And that. Bridgerton is kind of neither, in a way. Like, it, what it is is an anthology series, because it's, you know, based on these eight novels, and each one is a closed loop. Mm-hmm. So each one is somebody's story. And so in that sense, you know, season one was Simon and Daphne's limited series. That's Season right. two is Kate and Anthony's limited series, right? The beauty is that you can still bring them into future seasons, so it's a hybrid. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, there are 
new forms that are emerging now, I think, with streaming. So. Absolutely. So can you tell us a little bit about your projects? Can you give us a glimpse of what you're doing? Yeah. Um, let's see. I'm doing um, an original drama series that's sort of in the vein of succession. Um, I, I'm doing a fantasy, a YA fantasy novel adaptation um, that I'm really excited about with South Asian characters um, and drawing from some Hindu mythology, which is really fun. Wonderful. And I have a feature that I'm working on with a friend um, that I'm hoping to actually shoot and maybe even co-direct. Wonderful. It should be really fun, so. That's exciting. Yeah. So two last questions. One is, um, you've picked the song um, Feels Like Home by Drew Holcomb as the ending song. Can you tell us? Yeah. Why? So, I mean, I've moved around a lot in my life. Like, I think average, on average, I've lived in one home for maybe three or four years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like I've started over again and again and again. And you're always making new friends. You're always the new kid. You know, you're trying to sort of make sense of your world. And feeling that sense of being at home is um, is something that's been so has escaped me for so long and so when I find it it feels wonderful and I think it's a theme that ends up showing up again and again in my writing mm-hmm. is characters searching for home mm-hmm. and by home I mean a sense of belonging right mm-hmm. I think so often we try to fit in but that's not belonging belonging is I am who I am and I'm fully accepted and embraced here I'm home right Beautiful. and like I said the first time I, I started working in a writer's room I felt like I was home. Yeah. Like I felt like this is where I belong. It was a wonderful feeling. I felt that way when I was on set on Bridgerton. This feels like home. Wow. I, I love these people, the cast, the crew, just wonderful people. This feels like home. So to me, it, it's that it's that feeling of being you know fully who you are and, and fully in the moment and fully present. When I'm working on my feature with my friend, I feel, it feels like I'm at home. You know, so to me, that's kind of the ultimate of like, you know, what I'm seeking um, in my career, in my mm-hmm. work, in my mm-hmm. life, is that feeling of being home. So that's beautiful. I think that's why I beautiful. Think that. And last question is, what gives you life? Oh gosh, so many things, honestly. Um, relationships, family, friends. You, you're one of my <laughs> dearest friends. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, relationships are really such the center and priority in my life. You know, working with good people, um, collaborating with people. Um, I think faith gives me life yeah. and, and just having a sense of, of trust and um, purpose. Um, I think creating things that are meaningful, like writing something that you feel is really true um, and honest that's life-giving as well yeah i think yeah, yeah. I agree with that. and and just other people's art gives me life too when i see something that someone else has created um that makes you feel something yes that's life-giving beautiful beautiful Geeti. so find out more about Geetika on instagram twitter facebook at Geetika lazardi that's g-e-e T-I-K 
A Lizardi, L I Z A R D I. Connect with me at Author Shilpa and at Radio Life Force. And watch and share the replay of this episode of Life Force on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or RuckusAvenueRadio.com. Thank you, Geeti. It has been such a joy speaking with you today. It feels like one of our long walks where we talk <laughs> about everything. I love it. Thank you, Shilpa. Thank you for having me. Of course. And we end with the song, Feels Like Home, by Drew Holcomb. And it goes something like this. Have you ever been driving down a highway looking at the sunset? It'll make you forget all the troubles every day can bring. Have you ever been staring up at the starlight, getting pretty close to midnight? It sounds just like the wind singing your name. Feels like home. Like an old friend Takes you right back to the kitchen You can almost smell The cake that your grandma Made on your birthday Hi, I'm Soil And I believe in soil And I love soil And I come from the soil My name is Indy Rishi Singh I am speaking to you from Ruckus Avenue Radio And I'm talking about Save soil, hashtag soil health Hashtag soil, soil, soil Soil, soil, soil The argument about soil The flow about soil The harmony in soil Sadhguru, ConsciousPlanet.org Ruckus Radio Indy Rishi Singh Freedom Movement Soil, soil, soil Soil, soil, soil Soil, soil, soil Soil, soil, soil